0: Hi everyone, I'm Rosie Ward and this is Show Up as a Leader. I don't know how else to describe today's episode other than it is like a big warm hug and a lot of common sense all rolled into one. I had a wonderful conversation with the incredible Wendy Lynch, who you will learn doesn't even think of herself as a leader, which happens so often. But she is incredible and is very much a leader. She is the founder of Lynch Consulting and co-founder of Get to What Matters. And for over 35 years, Wendy has been making this really important connection between human and business performance. At heart, she is a sense maker and a translator nerd to corporate and corporate to nerd. She has been a consultant for numerous Fortune 100 companies, has an incredible career, and now she runs her own consulting firm as well as holding an adjunct position of associate professor at IUPUI. And her current research efforts really focus on the application of big data solutions in human capital management. She is this wonderful blend of a research scientist working in the business world and really making sense of things and helping us to really see that there is data to support a better way, a more human way. And we particularly, while well, she has a wonderful career, focus today on her Get to What Matters works and really about how do we create more authentic human connections and why it is so important that we actually learn to pause and to truly listen to other people and how we can move from surface level conversations to really make sure that we're getting to what matters and that we are giving the gift and creating the space for other people to feel heard and to have time to process their thoughts, which Seems counterintuitive in this world that is going a million miles an hour. And we just talked about so many different things. And I think that there are so many great nuggets. And I will tell you, That we reference a lot of Wendy's listening tools as core in our book, Rehumanizing the Workplace, but we also use them as modules in our work we do with teams and with leaders. So she has been a huge influence in our work, and I am so grateful for this conversation. And I think you're going to get a lot out of it that you can apply both in your personal life and your professional life. All right. Well, Wendy, it is so amazing uh, to see you in the bright spot to kick off my interviews for 2021 great to be here. So for the, I just want to kind of recap because you, you may or may not realize this, but I was trying to think about like when I first learned about you and when I first met you and I want to say it was like, gosh, it was 2006 or 2007. It was something like that. And I never heard of you, didn't know who you were. And you were speaking at a well-known national health promotion conference. I, I won't name the name because it doesn't matter, but I remember watching you and one, you just have this awesome calming presence, which I love. But you were speaking to things, you know, about you were talking about culture and you were talking about moving beyond, you know, I'm just gonna call it the stupidity of behavior change. You didn't use those words, those are mine. And I remember yeah. I walked away from your session and so and a couple others and I thought well, maybe the world is ready for me because I had always been kind of holding back and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not crazy. There's somebody else who is well-respected who thinks like this. So I just want to thank you because you, whether you realize it or not, paved the path for me to get out of my own way and say, okay, maybe I'll start to submit to speak at conferences because I'm I'm not as crazy as I thought.
1: Wow, I did not know that. No, I didn't know that. I was busy trying to kindly say that I thought we were going in the wrong direction (laughs) as a field. So
0: yeah. 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 Well, you have a much kinder grace about it than probably I did, but I was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe I, I probably would have eventually found another path to get out of my own way. But since this whole I'm sure also I'm about sure. getting Bye. out of your own way, you were you were literally that door opener for me. So Oh, that's awesome. That's yeah, awesome.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, good. So, good.
0: so I've and so with that, it's been really fun to watch I think your career and your work evolve and I know that you still do a lot of things in terms of workplace culture and wellness and environment. And, and I just love that you keep changing and looking at empowering women in leadership. and leadership. And the work that I want to focus on today, because I think it's it's all awesome, but it's so, so relevant for our audience is the work you've been doing in recent years of really getting to what matters. And yeah. um, and you know what's interesting, and so I'm gonna ask you to talk through little little parts of your book as well, but I just think that. We end up surfacing so much and we end up, I don't know, spinning our wheels. And I just, I, I love everything about what you're doing. And I want to read a little blurb to you, which tees this up. And I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. So this is from your book, yeah. Get to What Matters. Yeah. Say, so what matters to us drives what we do and how we feel. What matters is dynamic, changing in moments or held for a lifetime. At its essence, what matters is personal, real, and valid. No one can deny what matters to another person, it just does. They can argue, judge, or insist based on what matters to them that something simply shouldn't matter, but doing so misses the point. Very simply, what matters, matters. At the core of a helpful conversation is an interest and openness to the wisdom of others. In the work environment as in life, we all want to feel competent and valued. And I, I, what I love that, but I was, as I was rereading, I thought it feels so much more relevant with the insanity our world has been through now more than ever. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's, it's interesting. Um, and would it be helpful to give you a little bit of evolution of how, how we, we got to that? Um, I would love you to. So, and I think it helps people uh, when they're thinking about career changes or career evolution. So I'm a total nerd, um, total researcher. Um, my core um, background and career has always been in research and evaluation and data analytics. And that is still a lot of the core of, of what I do. And I, I think of myself as a translator, business to nerd, nerd to business. That's kind of how I think about it. Um, I've always thought that making sense of things adds adds a lot, in, especially in the, in the business world, and this crosswalk between people and business, and as you say, humanizing the workplace. But sometimes evidence helps that happen. So if I show you that there's a correlation between mental health and performance, if I show you that there's a, a, an association between how people feel about their coworkers and whether they are absent from work, then you can start to put something in place where leadership maybe pays a little bit more attention.
0: Well, yeah, I love that because when you're changing paradigms or when you're trying to do something different, yeah, people go, we tend to fall back on, it feels unsettling, but if there's data, now it makes it more tangible. And so I love that you bring that, that into it because, because I know that I can speak for myself, like your earlier work, like until, people like yourselves, like I'm not a data person. Like I'm a qualitative researcher. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a put stuff into practice. And, and so I get super excited when you have the data and the research that I can leverage to further support. See, I'm not crazy or see this makes sense for people who do need that. So I just wanted to say that as an aside because I just think it's so important. Well, it, it, it is. And it's, and it's
1: powerful. Um, I, I just was reminding myself recently Twenty years ago, there was this theory of work withdrawal that um, was popular, and a lot of writing was done about it and i and I got reminded of it this week when I was talking to an employer that has worries in a variety of different areas and that and the work withdrawal theory is that you don't you don't just leave and quit um, very few people that's just you know one event it's this process of first emotionally withdrawing and then behaviorally withdrawing, and then identity withdraw, and then finally you leave if you have the ability to leave. And so every little step is is like this uh, turning away of being your full self at work. And so if you have theories like that, and you can say, look, first thing that happens, engagements down and job satisfaction down. Second thing that happens, they're late all the time. Third thing that happens, you know, they're not performing well. And then they're gone. So it's not just, oh, we've got to work on retention. Because it's a much bigger process because humans are way more complicated than that.
0: Yeah, it's not there's a, there there's was one a, little thing. Yeah, there was a book and I'm going to, I don't remember the exact title, but it's something along the lines of, I quit, but I forgot to tell you. <laughs> Exactly.
1: (laughs) No, that's, uh, that's exactly right. So anyway, um, so I'm very much still involved in that area. And um, much to, uh, uh, to my, um, uh, one of the biggest blessings I will say in my life was when I was a professor at the University of Colorado, there was a woman who was also in the same department. And this was the Department of Family Medicine. And she was the psychologist who helped new physicians learn how to talk better to patients. And this woman, her name's is Clydette DeGroat, is just the one, you know, the people, the person that you wanted to be around, the person that you just, there was something about her. And I noticed that she just could, Diffuse a tough conversation or, you know, inspire somebody very, very quickly. And so I I became friends with her and she became a mentor. We're still, we still talk a lot. And I asked her to teach me what she knew, which was through decades of a variety of different kinds of teachers and disciplines and a variety of different things. And um, so I asked her please teach me about all of those things. And what's interesting is I would say that the research and the data analytics is what I do. But the get to what matters stuff is how I practice being in the world. And so what happened was people started to say, wow, how did you know what question to ask that client? Or how did you help us get through that issue when, you know, the team was struggling, or they would, they would come to me and people still come to me um, to have a conversation. And I started to realize that as you get toward the latter part of your career, if there was one thing that I really wanted to do. It was to put all of the things that she taught me at least at a surface level out there, and which is why we worked on the book. <laughs> And that, because it wasn't what we were doing with our lives at that time as the main thing, it took seven years to actually end up putting it together and get it out. So that's kind of the story is this feels like it's sort of my, my, more my purpose is to uh, help people in that way, even though my work itself isn't that.
0: Yeah. Well, I love that because you're, you're living into your purpose and I love that, you know, I think one of the things that people sometimes forget about is that it doesn't matter how long we've been on this earth, it doesn't matter how many degrees we have, or how how many layers of expertise we have, or how many people look to us as a mentor, that we still need guidance and learning and and mentorship too, so I just, I I love, and I do a lot of work with physicians, and so I I just, I appreciate everything about that, and seven years is a long journey, and and I'm glad that you're I'm glad that the the book came to fruition. And so I do want to talk about some of the content because I will tell you that I loved your book anyway. And then you spoke at our fusion 2.0 conference in the fall of 2018. And, uh, you know, I just loved your session. And then obviously we now reference some of your work in our new book, rehumanizing the workplace. Cause I just think there's just really simple, powerful, impactful things. And, and one of the things that you talk about specifically is listening. And I want you to expand on this a little bit more f- for many reasons, but one, my very first interview for this podcast was Bob Chapman, and I didn't know what we were going to talk about, but he ended up talking about listening and really how it's the foundation of everything they do at Barry Waymiller and the nonprofit they started to teach that, and I would say if you look back over the past year, we're, we're recording this at the beginning of January or middle of January, I guess, 2021, but the past year I think has taught us the, the consequences, I feel like, of not listening to people And, and when we do listen, what's, what's possible. And so, um, in your book, you talk about a lot of different things related, related to listening. And so I want to leave it open. There's some things I want you to touch on, but when you think about getting to what matters, tell me why listening is such a big focus and maybe some things that you espouse to, or you found works to help people listen better.
1: Yeah. Um, it's so interesting because listening, Sounds like it's just this simple thing um, and that we ought to all be good at it. And I think the the core part of listening for us as we were thinking about it is number one, intention. If you come to a conversation with an intention, um, then it comes through, regardless of what that intention is. So... If I come to a conversation with you, Rosie, and I think, you know, I really need to change her mind um, because I think she's doing the wrong thing. Or if I uh, really want to let her know how much I know about the things that she's going through, whatever it is that my intention is, even if it's with all, you know, it's positive and I, I really mean well, those intentions will absolutely get in the way of one's ability to really allow, uh, allow discovery on the part of the other person. So when we're thinking about listening from the get to what manner standpoint is we are inviting that other person to understand more about their own thinking. And so you go in with the premise that if I'm having a conversation with you and you're you're trying to work through something it doesn't have to be anything monumental but you're trying to figure out maybe what you want to accomplish at your conference when you do fusion 2.0 well you haven't had a chance necessarily to think it all through in a way where you can think about it from the big picture and think about it in the little experience and think about it from the standpoint different standpoints so Because those are new thoughts, we want to give you a space. I think about it as there's rooms in your head (laughs) that you haven't opened all those doors yet. And I can't possibly know what's in there. You don't even know what's in there yet. So it's a real gift to give someone the space and time to be able to think. Mm -hmm. And that's what listening can be. If you're willing to provide that to somebody, is that it's a a very much a gift?
0: Yeah. Well, I I 100% agree with you, and it reminds me of one of my early coaching trainings with Intrinsic Coaching. We talked about really turning down our value volume so we can turn up the others. But that the goal of a conversation is not to get to an action plan. The goal of a conversation is to create a space for thinking to expand, knowing that if you plant a seed and don't step on the fragility of that new thinking, it will grow and enhance and strengthen and morph outside of the conversation, which is where the real work happens. And so um, the other thing it reminds me of is, you know, in order to do that, Kevin Cashman talks about the the biases of listening. We have this action bias. We want to jump in. And I feel like, and I would love to give your thoughts on this. I feel like in our fast-paced world, it's almost like people are going quicker and quicker and quicker because they're in reactivity mode, and it seems counterintuitive to pause. And, and I know pause is one of your your listening of the three P's, but it feels counterintuitive to pause and slow down. But yet, it's necessary to make sure that we're not going off in the wrong direction. It's necessary to make sure we're creating that space um, for people to to get clarity about what matters or or whatnot. And so, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that. It is so counterintuitive to the way we're hardwired, but also what our world seems to be demanding of us.
1: Right, right. Well, it's easy to say, phew, okay, I listened. Now we can move on. And uh, one of the things that Clyde uh, taught me that was quite miraculous, and again, these are simple things, but is the rule of three, which is that usually the first thing that somebody says is their automatic response. Then the second thing is they've started to kind of unpack, but it's still sort of surfacy. And if you ask them a third time or you prompt them a third time, you often get to something that's been subliminal but important to them. So what we talk about is those three Ps, pause, prompt, and paraphrase. So I would ask you, so tell me more about you know, what's, what you're thinking for that conference. And after you talk about it, I say, wow, what what else are you thinking about the conference? Is there anything else that you're thinking about for the conference? And when you give someone that chance, think about the last time somebody gave you a chance to answer three times. Probably it's been eons, if ever, because we, we are in a hurry. And too often, our listening is waiting for the chance to jump in. (laughs) and what we're going to say next and so it's a it's a really a practice and I have to practice all the time I jump in all the time I get enthusiastic and I want to say stuff and interrupt and that's what we do Um, and so yes it's a very tough skill Um, and it's a very difficult um, discipline to keep yourself in a place where I'm going to put my thinking aside because What I want to do is invite Rosie to think about this and be able to unpack what might be uh, really cool thinking.
0: Well, and that goes, and I know this goes with the setting intention, because if I don't go into the conversation setting an intention that I want to give you space, this is not about me, this is about you. I want to give Wendy space to explore their thinking or... You know, going into a committee meeting or a team meeting, you know what, this is not about me. This is, I need to get ideas and feedback from my team or family or neighbors, right? When we, when we say, you know what, my intention is, this is not the Rosie show, right? Or right. this is not the, this is, this is, I'm here to learn. Or even, you know, I, I will say sometimes, um, again, I'm always referencing that your work with a setting intention, but you could go in, of I am setting the intention of, I don't have to have any answers in this conversation. I can just seek exactly. to understand, exactly. right? Exactly. And, 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 um and what I also love about the, the, the rule of three, you're right. How often do we get that space? And I think it seems like it's easier to do one-on-one, but I've found even in a, in a team, like if someone's processing out loud and you give them that space, and if someone else tries to step out, you go, hold on, I want to hear, you know, this is kind of facilitation one oh one, but no, I want this person to finish their thoughts. It is such a gift and it's a core human need to feel heard and seen and feel like we matter. And this is really honoring that um core humanity. The other thing, and I would love to give you your thoughts on this, but so we we've piggybacked off your work and we do exercises in some of our core workshops. And when we get to listening, we use some of these tools and we'll do interactive role plays about the rule of three. And it's really eye-opening because we give people a scenario, we have them practice it, and it only takes them three, four minutes tops. And and they usually do have this incredible aha of wow, like either it reaffirmed the energy and commitment to what I was thinking to begin with, or I did have some new thinking that I didn't even know was there. It can go either way. But the fact that yeah. that came up in three or four minutes, because people think I don't have time to ask somebody three questions. It's going to take too right. long. So I know, how do you I know. address there, that time question? Well,
1: it is a, a frequent, um, it, it's either I don't have time for that, or, oh my God, this isn't therapy. I don't want to have to hear all about this. But really what you do is you end up saving time in the long run because you get to the thing, the thing that matters rather than the quick answer that is on the top of everybody's head. So you avoid, and I I have many, many examples of people who Said, you know, we went to this client, we asked them what was going on, they told us, and we went, okay, we'll go fix that. And then they ran to fix that, and then the client's still not happy. So we went and asked the client again, and the client said something different, and we went and fixed that. And so you go, well, did you sit for a while and ask whether there's anything else? And can you think of anything else? And how else might you think about this? Because when you do, you end up getting at this much more intrinsic, to use, your favorite word, um, feeling about what's happening rather than a surface action or, or demand.
0: Well, yeah. And I would say for those people who, I don't care if you're internal or external, if you're in any kind of role where you're supposed to be serving a customer internally or externally, or in any kind of consultative role, which I feel like any of us are, um, whether it's internal or external, those skills are so powerful because I will tell you the majority of The consulting contracts and the work that we have, it started out, someone comes with a request. And if I would have just filled it, it, that was like bandaid. It really wasn't what was going on in their organization. When you just start asking questions and you create a safe space for them to talk and they realize, oh my gosh, we've got bigger issues. Can you help us with that? Or you know, whatever it might be, it's like, okay. And this is not about, oh, let's uncover everything and be all things to all people. It might be, well, I can't help you with this, but I can help you find somebody. But if you don't fix this, we can't help this. And I just think that I know when I used to be in an insurance broker, there would be a rub with us on the consulting end and, and, and people on the account management, because they would get a request from a client. And they would come to us and go, hey, they want to do this. And I was like, well, did you ask this, this, and this? And they would get really irritated. And they're like, well, they just want to do it. And our job is to, like, well, no, your job is to ask thoughtful questions because why do they want to do that? Because that's probably a big fat waste of time, right? And and so then I would get on the phone with them and I wouldn't be rude about it. I was like, well, what are you trying to accomplish and what is it? And I would talk them out of things that were quite frankly going to be pointless, but it was just by asking questions. And so I think sometimes there is that fear of, well, we don't know what they're going to say or... What if they say something that we don't have the expertise or we don't have the knowledge to do, then what do we do?
1: Right, right. Well, and, and the other thing about three times is if somebody's irritated or upset um, or disappointed, when you allow them to talk about it in a way that lets them complete their thought about what, what they were upset about, they have a much, they're much more likely to let it go and to move on. But if, if I say, oh, Rosie, I see you're upset. We'll go take care of it. You haven't had a chance to really say, no, this is why it was upsetting. And this is what I really you know, need. And this is what's going on. And if I'm willing to, you know, honor that, that that's something that shouldn't have happened or that I wish was different, it's much more likely you're going to move on than if I say, OK, got it. Don't need to talk about that anymore. So it's, it's letting somebody have the space.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what that, you know, just that brought up for me, as you said, that is I think about like, I have a 10 year old, right. They're going through mood swings. It's like preteen, tween, and he'll get upset about something. If I was to just say, Hey, what's wrong? Nothing. And if I leave it at that. Right. And so, so I think there's, there's the asking the good questions in the three, but I think it's also setting that stage of intentionality and being explicit about like, this is a psychologically safe place or. Hey, like you, you can tell me anything. I'm not going to get mad. Like I get mad if you don't, you know, talk to me or whatever. And just saying like, we need to be able to talk to each other and when you're ready or whatever it might be. So I think, um, I think it's a huge parenting thing too.
1: Yes. Yes, it absolutely is. And I have friends who have uh, gone through teenage years with their kids using some of the things from get to what matters because they're just very respectful and, um, gives people space. And so it just gives you a, a framework for an ability to, I think it gives you confidence because you have ideas about what you might do next, yeah. um, depending on what it is that you run into, which is which is great. And I, I wanted to comment on another comment that you made on psychological safety, you know, making a safe space because of the research nerd I am. I, I, did, a, I did a big literature review on psychological safety because I know that a lot of managers don't like that word. You know, they feel like it's a coddling sort of a a thing. And if you haven't seen some of the literature, it is fascinating. They've looked at psychological safety in the workplace and how it actually affects performance. And if you give employees a psychologically safe, meaning a place where you feel welcome to bring concerns and ideas, and there's no likelihood of retribution or, or punishment or ridicule you actually improve people's creativity dramatically you improve their memory they actually remember what's happening in the business you improve not just the things you would expect like satisfaction but their mental cognitive function changes when you provide a safe space for people to communicate and so it, it ends up being way bigger than just being nice. Yeah, It's it's helping people function.
0: Yeah. Well, and I love um, Amy Edmondson it will regularly say that psychologically safe workplaces and work teams, because it resides at that local team level, is, yeah. is I, I mean, this is my words, but I say it's not all unicorns and rainbows. Those psychologically safe teams have those difficult conversations. They have disagreements, but the candor is expected and it's rewarded. Yeah. And I think about, I think about like psychological safety on a team level. I think about it in our, in our community, in our families, right. That like can we speak up to our spouse or our kids or our parents or, you know, our friends and neighbors, or you think about even like, you know, the divisiveness around masks and everything and just all, there's so much stuff. And it's like, if we don't feel safe speaking up, because we're going to get literally, we're physically in danger, or we're going to get shunned, or we're going to get, whatever, right, like people right. shut, people shut down. Um, yeah. And yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting too, because I think with everything that's gone on with the pandemic, rightfully so, there's massive talks all about safety, right? Like our health and safety, physical safety, and with the violence and stuff that's been on in the United States, a lot of safety. And the conversations that I've been having, whether it's a manufacturing client or a healthcare client, is I'm like, you cannot be talking about safety and not also look at psychological safety and culture. And are you equipping people with the skills to be right. self-aware, to know that they're even, to use Brene Brown's word, armoring up and shutting down? Are you equipping people to learn how to listen, right? And set an intention to show up curious rather than judgmental to piggyback your work. You know, it's like, if we're not equipping people to navigate these really disruptive times and not show up as our triggered awful selves that erode psychological safety. Like we can't have any other conversation about any other type of safety.
1: No, I, I I agree. I think that's a really uh, great point. And I'm glad to hear that you're bringing that up uh, with employers because it's, it's not in some organizations, it's really not um, high enough on the priority list. Uh, There's two, still too many places where being, uh brutal and inconsiderate is perfectly fine
0: right yeah it's it's yeah. it's the it's brutal feedback where i don't give a rats behind about you and i'm not doing it to be helpful i'm doing it to be judgmental and um presumptive which isn't yeah doesn't do anybody any
1: right right or uh, or power uh, yeah there's still a lot of uh dynamic in conversations that is about power which unfortunately I don't think in the long run gets you very far, Mm-mm. but in the short run, it can bully and intimidate. And it's still, it's still very much out there.
0: Oh yeah. I, I think you mm-hmm. and I will have work for a long time. Because unfortunately <laughs> it is out there. I'm like, Oh, you know, I would love to say there's no need to rehumanize workplaces, but you right. Know what? Right. There
1: right. Is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Clyde, Clyde said something to me um, this last week where, um, at least we don't have to worry that executive coaches, um, have nothing to do, but
0: <laughs> yeah, I would say the coaching yeah. part of my business has skyrocketed because it's, yeah, people are, oh, it's yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, oh, good. There, there's a lot of work to be done. And, in, in, um, yes,
1: yes, unfortunately there is,
0: but yeah. So speaking of like power over or whatever, one of the things I would love you to speak to a little bit, and then I'm going to shift gears with our questioning. But in your book, you talk about some of the challenging styles, right? Like what happens when you're interacting? And there were several of them, but I, I wrote down a couple of them. And I'm going to let you pick which one you want to talk about. But ones that I've been <laughs> noticing coming up in my coaching conversations, speaking of coaching or coming up in team dynamics, where people ask me like, well, how do I deal with this? So one of them is the silent one. Um, Mm -hmm. one of them is the complainers, victims, and drama queens, which I think there's a lot of those lately. Uh, one Mm -hmm. of them is the know-it-all. And then the other one is someone who gets lost in the weeds. So I know you talked about more, but those were like the four that I find that I am getting asked about a lot. So I would invite you to pick one of those that you want to speak to and just talk about some tips of dealing with that challenging style.
1: Okay. Um, well, let's, let's talk about weeds. Um, let's talk about about weeds um, because it it takes into account some a, a, an interesting um, framework uh, for thinking about how how people talk and uh, what level uh, they tend to operate on. So um, we all know people who are really really detail oriented, um, and I actually surround myself with those people because. Uh, I'm so big picture it's hard to get me to get detail oriented, so in some ways they're a blessing um but there are uh weed people that uh where it's very, very difficult to get them out of um worrying about you know what color the pencils are gonna be at the meeting that you're gonna have on strategy
0: um so <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. clear the so, post-it um, notes or whatever, yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, um one of the things uh, to think about is that there are different levels of meaning to people. And um the more detailed level where people are into the specifics um is about uh what what's around you and what specific behaviors people may have. There is a sort of a strategy level um, called motivation. You're translating things. And then there's this overarching sort of big picture motivating um, about your beliefs and your identity and those sorts of things. So what we wanna do is when somebody's operating uh, in their specifics, what you wanna know is what's important about those specifics to them. And you want to help nudge our conversation a little bit um, higher up into their motivation. So what I'm, I would be doing is I might uh, talk to you about maybe the rule of three. So besides the colored pencils, uh, tell me more about what what else you would like to have at the meeting. Oh well, we also have to have you know erasers and post-it notes. Oh, and, and what else might might we have? Well, we want to have snacks because people get hungry or whatever. So when I am able to help them unpack that uh, and get a better picture of these specifics, um, I want to go up a level. And so there's a question that you can ask that is, um, so Rosie, if you had the colored pencils and the Post-it notes and the snacks, um, how would that be valuable to the meeting? And that helps you kind of get up above, I don't mean it as a hierarchy, like a true value, but it helps get you up toward values and things that are meaningful to you and sort of the reason behind these specific things. And you may not get all the way there. I mean, you may only get to, well, that'll make it a really comfortable, productive meeting. But I might say, well, how else will it be a productive meeting? Expand that a little bit and again, say, well, if it wasn't a really productive meeting, how will that be valuable to us moving forward? And so I, again, take it another step up so that we get to what it is that you really hope to accomplish um, by having those specific things. And so that is one of the levels, um, ways to move a level up is how would that be valuable to you? And it really does change the, like I said, the door that they're opening so that they're going to a different um, a different level, a different room in their brain that is yeah. a little bit more, more uh, belief oriented.
0: Yeah. I like that. I think that, um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this as you're saying that I, I was thinking about when I've had conversations, people like, okay, so what, you've got all the bases covered, right? Like all the, all the basics are needed. So what will tell you when we walk away an hour from now or four hours from now or whatever, when you leave this meeting, how will you know it's been productive or how will you know it's been right. effective? Right. So you're kind of doing that vantage point of helping them and, you know, what will tell you it's, it's what will tell you during it's on the right course or not. So I think helping them kind of, uh, yeah. Um, kind of think through that. And I know the other, I was just having a conversation with, uh, someone else the other day and they were talking about leading team meetings or leading committee meetings where, you know, people are engaged and then they're not engaged or whatever. And, and, um, and, uh, And I had said kind of something similar, but I said, you know, when I am working with groups and you start to feel engagement vary or engagement drop or whatever it is, I like to have a group conversation about, you know, we've been meeting for a while or maybe our charter has changed or maybe life has changed. So I would like to like rehear from every single one here, what would be a valuable use of your time? Like you come to these meetings and you walk away what are you wanting from this group or wanting from these meetings or whatever? And they get to co-create, right. co-create it. And it might, maybe it needed to shift because our life has shifted. I don't know. So that's a tangent, but it's just another way of kind of getting them to think how, how will yeah. I even know versus, Oh, I'm going to another meeting. like, well, no, what will make this a valuable use of your time or how will you know it's
1: right. 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 And we, we like uh, a lot of how questions and your, how questions are, you know, are wonderful. Um, how will you decide, a is a very good um opening question when somebody uh, is exploring the idea that we're going to do a project well how will you decide that that project is useful or successful um because that is sort of the the overarching strategy level that um how people translate the world into specifics and specifics into the world yeah so how did you decide that that was a critical issue gives you a whole lot of information about them and, and what's important to them.
0: Yeah. Their decision-making process, or you might find out that they really haven't thought about that. And it's like, okay, well, it might be kind of helpful to you. Like, how, how do you know if it's a good decision or not? Or how, right. how, how do you go about making decisions? And they might find that they, they have right. a, a more thoughtful process and they realize or that they need to maybe be more thoughtful about their decisions.
1: Right. I mean, you can ask somebody, um, Who's thinking about working with you, well, how would you decide if I was the right person to work with you? Yep. And very often it, it requires them really stopping and thinking. You have to give them a lot of space because they haven't really thought about it. Yep. And you're right. If they haven't thought about it, then it might not be a project you want to do until they figure out what they need because you could be chasing a lot of things that they, they haven't really defined yet.
0: Yeah. I love that. And, you know, the other question that just came to mind that might be helpful for people who, again, whether they're internal or external in an organization is, you know, obviously we do a lot of work with leadership development and, you know, whether it's someone's trying to decide, do we start with like executive leaders or next gen or where do we start or how broad do we make this or whatnot, I, you know, when they're going back and forth, I feel it's like the ping pong. They're trying to figure out how do I make this decision that I like to go a step back and say, well, fast forward, you've made this decision, you've invested in whatever you're going to invest in. How will you know it's the right one? What will tell you it's the right one? And then back into how are you going to decide? Um, you know, like what, yeah. what, like what in general will tell you. And it's so, yeah, I I, I love that. I love that. So yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit, but, but it's not completely shifting gears. So these are questions I like to ask all of my guests. But one of the premise of this whole podcast is that every single one of us, regardless of our title or role, have an opportunity to show up as a leader in our life and make a positive difference. And that it's part of the human condition that when we do work to show up as a leader, um, sometimes we get our butts kicked when we do that. And sometimes we don't always feel like doing that. And we have like our own narrative that you know, keeps us wanting to stay safe and small. So what I would love to hear from you, Wendy, if you're willing to share is what is a self-limiting story that you sometimes tell yourself? And when it shows up, how do you move beyond it so that you can still show up as a leader?
1: Well, it's really interesting (laughs) because, um, my first reaction when you asked whether I would be on this, um, podcast was what um because I don't consider myself a leader so it was a a really interesting little internal debate about um well she's talking about leadership and I I don't know that that's anything that I do and it really got me thinking about a lot of things and I uh, I um So I'll tell you the, the negative story and then I'll tell you where I, where I landed. Um, So I worked for one of the large human resources consulting houses, one of the national consulting houses for several years. And when they hire you, they put you through um, eight hours, well, at least at the time they put you through eight, they fly you somewhere and and do eight hours of psychological testing. And then um, if they decide that you're a fit, then they give you feedback and they have somebody give you feedback. And so I got feedback. They hired me and I I had my debrief and they said, well, I mean, the good news is is you're good at this and you're good at that and you're going to be a good fit at this and you're smart and blah, 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 blah. And then he said, don't ever let them um, put you in a management or leadership position. Wow. It had a big impact on me for many, many years. Um, and I never really got uh, a whole lot of information about uh, why they thought that, um, but they they were clear um, that I probably shouldn't be leading anybody um, or managing anybody. And um, it probably was fine uh, for the most part because I really wanted to do work and not um, uh, be part of the, the some of the administrative parts of leadership, but it, you know, when people make a judgment about you, uh, it sticks with you. Mm-hmm. And so my, uh, I think, uh, I would call my, if it helps anybody, I would call my style of leadership, leadership through invitation, the same way that a host leads you to somewhere comfortable or lead you to, uh, Think differently. So I would say that that if there is a leadership that I do, it's a leadership through invitation, and that's an okay way to provide uh, an opening. Um, so that's kind of where I I landed. But but yeah, it's a it it was very funny to get your th- then for you to say we're going to at- maybe ask you about. What gets in the way, and well, ironically, I don't think of myself as a leader, so that is kind of a a, a funny, uh, a a, a funny challenge. Yeah. Well,
0: it's so funny you say that, Wendy, because you know I think about when I was, you know, in my earlier years in the wellness industry. You look like who are the leaders? Like these are the people that are doing the research, and these are the people that are speaking. So, like thought leader, right? And and I and I'm I'm chuckling because I love your humbleness, and if. And, but it's interesting for me to hear you say, I don't consider myself a leader. Cause to me, I'm like, uh, duh, you 1 billion percent are And even the fact that you're writing this book of how do you help people get to what matters from our perspective, you know, leadership is about maximizing your positive impact on the world, which you're doing right. And you even said, you get to what matter is like, is like your, your purpose work. And, and our caveat is you maximize your positive impact by one doing whatever work you need to show up as your best, fully authentic self, which I view you as such a genuine, authentic person. And two, as you do that, you help others break past barriers and step into their greatness. So if you look at like that definition of leadership and whether you, you know, other people have similar ones, but if it's about really, you know, like you said, it's by invitation, but it's like, if it helps you think differently, or you can use some of these tools where you can enhance relationships, I I would invite you to... (laughs) And shift that narrative because so many people look to you as a leader. And as I started out this podcast saying like, you open the doors for me to go, oh my gosh, I want, I can be like Wendy. Like I can, so there you go.
1: Right. Well, it just, it, it, if you can realize that leadership doesn't mean that you are, you know, out in front of the parade at all times, nope. um, it can be that you are, you know, making sure that people can be a part of the parade. Um, whether you're actually in the parade or not. So.
0: Well, and sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes the people that are out front just because they're visible doesn't mean that they're leading. It reminds me of Susan Cain's work The Quiet Revolution, you know, like we're looking at introverts and just anyway. So I just, I think that there's such a different way. So I'm glad it got you thinking. And I think it's such a different way of (laughs) looking at leadership. So yeah,
1: I know know. it was very funny because at first I was like, should I just say no?
0: (laughs) Oh, no, you can't. (laughs) Did I just say no? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you didn't say no. So. Yes, it's um, been very enjoyable. Yes. Oh, good. It has been. It has been. Well, so I are. I like to wrap up with a set of like quick, rapid questions. Just kind of they they move from a little more thoughtful to kind of more fun and silly uh, for the human side of guests. If you're if you're up for it. Sure. All right. So first one. Fill in the blank. Living authentically is.
1: Living authentically is uh, looking straight at your whole self, so not looking away from the flaws that you have, not looking away from the talents that you have, just being very um, transparent with yourself, not wishing you were something else.
0: I love that. I love that. So th- th- this will be funny to you. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you what do you do? <laughs> um.
1: Well, I think as I've gotten older, probably the first thing I do is um, trust that there may be a really good reason that I don't want to show up. Trust that it maybe it isn't safe, or it isn't the right fit, or somebody else would be even better. Um, but if it's just that I'm being lazy, I guess I, uh, I try, try and uh, uh, give myself a, a little swift kick and and get on with it.
0: <laughs> like I'm going to be on Rosie's podcast. No kidding.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, or afraid, it. I guess, or very reluctant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. When's the last time you were courageous and how did you show up?
1: Um, wow. I, you know, it's hard to think of yourself as courageous right now when, you know, all the first responders and people are actually courageous, but um, I, what would be, I think what would be good is to think about like, nano courage or micro courage you know you you talked about standing up um, uh, being willing to let someone know that they're inconsiderate and they shouldn't have been that i mean in a respectful way but but let them know um, when i know that people are anti-gay and i talk about my wife when i um, decline the invitation to go to the gathering because I know that they're not taking COVID seriously. You know, it's those small ways that you you are true to what you believe. I think, and and so maybe little micro bravery adds up to bigger bravery. But uh, that would be that. That's probably the closest.
0: I. Again, you can ignore me, but I would say, I would not call that micro bravery. I think that that is, I think that living authentically and being true to your values takes immense courage. So there you go. Not that my words, but like, I'm like, right. Because there are so but, many know, people that go along because it just feels awkward, but it's like, you know what? No, yeah. like not okay. And I'm, you're in your own values. Like that takes courage, not on a micro level on a just courage, courage. You don't, you don't have to rate more courage, less courage. Like, That's courageous.
1: Well, it's, you know, I think, I, I think we don't give ourselves credit, um, uh, for, for adhering rather than, like you said, going along. I mean, it is, it is hard to, especially if you're a pleaser and which I am, you know, inherently, Yep, it is hard. I'm with you. And, and, you know, I think when you talked about stepping out, um, of, of the norm, I, I think probably the thing that took the most professional courage was um, deciding that I couldn't go along with a certain line of thinking anymore. Yeah. So admitting that you've learned something new and you don't believe what you thought you believed anymore. That is, that is hard.
0: Yeah. Which and is so why I don't speak there, at a lot of those conferences anymore. I can't do it. Right, I, I can't be right. an integ- I cannot be an integrity and be the token challenge the status quo when everything else about it is right. complete yeah yes that's why we started fusion but that's an aside yeah 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 no i got i get it yeah yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: not an right. easy thing no 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 what's something people would be surprised to know about you Well, i'm pretty not very
1: surprising i would say <laughs> um um well you know this but um I like uh turning research into spoken word poetry. So and I, you can rap. Call them, that's that's what I call rap. I, I I was corrected by somebody that that's not really rap, but I I call it research as poetry, which I abbreviate to rap. So um so you know, I I did one on um on healthcare consumerism and I did one on get to what matters. So um so yeah, I I I don't know that people expect me to be that silly, but I am.
0: No, and you're freaking (laughs) phenomenal at it. I love it. I love it so much. Um, Okay, now we're going to get a little more silly. So this is if reality and money and nothing, like we're no object, uh, the four Cs. It's my conversation starter. Um, So what car would you want to have? What country would you want to visit? What cuisine would you want to eat? It does not have to be related to the country. And what celebrity would you want to eat that cuisine with? And the celebrity can be living or dead.
1: Hmm. So first one is car. Yep. Well, you know, they've just been working on a whole bunch of flying cars. Ooh. You know, they have those flying cars. There's, I think they're going to test in Abu Dhabi, the new flying taxis. They're like little life-size drones. So if, if in fact, they don't kill you, I would think I, I would, I would love to be in the flying, a flying car. I think cool. I think that would be so fun. Um, it's like the jets above traffic. I know. Uh, so I so I've seen them in, in like YouTube, so I, I think they exist. So that's okay. one. Um uh, country. Um I don't know. Right now I'm really wanting to go to the Canadian Rockies. So that would be probably I'd really like to go hiking in the Canadian Rockies. So that's that's that. Um I'm torn on cuisine. I love Mexican food. But I also think it would be if I could just go have authentic, you know, French baguette and cheese and wine. Oh, I mean, French, you know, like that you don't need much more than that. So that 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 would be I would be very happy with that. Celebrity. You know, it's funny. I'm curious about people around celebrities so it doesn't have to be a celebrity right
0: well could it be yeah. anybody yeah i guess i mean yeah we, we say celebrity but you can you can pick whoever so 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 um i read this book called the
1: other einstein it was about einstein's wife who is a, a physicist also but she didn't get credit for how she contributed to all of the theories that he had oh. so i'm just i'm right now i'm just interested in the people around the celebrities like Wouldn't it be fun to like meet Gandhi's mom, you know? Yeah. How did, did, you know, how did Gandhi end up being Gandhi? It must've been somebody around, you know, whoever, you know, made him think the way he does or did or whatever, or, or, I mean, it just is, I, I just am fascinated by the people around the people.
0: Yeah. So you're going to have French fantastic. you're going to have French wine, baguette and cheese with Einstein's wife and Gandhi's mom. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Oh, okay. So let's just, yeah, let's see yeah. what they what they had to say. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. It's, I love it. <laughs> All right. Your favorite go-to movie. Oh, um
1: I love sappy love stories. Like ones where people last forever like ghost and you know always i love those ones yeah
0: nice so sappy sappy your go-to song oh my
1: gosh i don't know that i have one i i like so many different kinds of music i mean anything from lady gaga to billy holiday to i mean Nice. I, I don't have an answer to
0: that one. Don't don't limit yourself. It's all good. Um, <laughs> your signature dance move.
1: <laughs> I actually probably would say the move that I just saw from somebody else on the dance floor that I think looks really cool. <laughs> you know, like I'm one of those people that I'm like a really cool move so I do that one and somebody else does something else and so I I probably don't have one of my own so I guess that's very inauthentic on the you could be but.
0: the shadow dancer or the, the God exactly dancer. exactly like they did oh that is so cool I wish I knew how to do that
1: yeah exactly all
0: right <laughs> I love it in another life your job or career would be I have always thought
1: that bass players in like rock bands and uh r&b bands just seems so cool now i don't i'm not musical at all i don't play an instrument i can't carry tunes but i think those guys in the back that are just you know they just they only move like two fingers (laughs) the whole song but they lead everybody else so I guess that kind of fits with me, doesn't it? That they, they're just sort of keeping the rhythm <laughs> and they're in the background. Uh, I, I think, I think they are the coolest. They I, player, love I, I love it. I love it. So you could
0: have, you could have your shades on, you can be playing the bass and you can be mimicking the dance moves of the lead singer. Exactly. <laughs> of somebody else. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. I, I would that. be, I would be a pip, not Gladys Knight. I would be one of the pips. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. I'll change it to Wendy Pip anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'll be one of the Pips. All right, so I say this lightly with quote something because it doesn't have to be a thing. But what's something you can't live without?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, walks in the outdoors with my dog. I think that being outdoors this year has just saved my soul, and I have a Labrador who's just. Um, just great so that yeah I couldn't have survived I couldn't have
0: got it got it nice something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy yeah my dog
1: my dog yeah
0: love it what's your dog's name karma karma oh I love it I love it sometimes good karma
1: sometimes bad karma (laughs)
0: <laughs> we, we, we got two little puppies at the end of October. And so I feel these, somebody's like, Oh, I love you so much. And sometimes during the day, I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> shut up. it. Totally get it. <laughs> and <laughs> last but not least, what are you grateful for right now? Oh, all the love in my
1: life. Um, uh, my wife and uh, extended family and good friends. Uh, I think it's been a year that you appreciate them. I just wish I could hug all of them more. <laughs> you know, I think there's been a big hug deficit. Yeah. That, uh, I can't wait to uh, earn back. I don't know. It is. Yeah. Uh, you know what it reminds yeah. me of
0: is the, uh, I don't know if you were there, but at the very end of the, the 2018 Fusion 2.0 conference, Raj Sosodia led this amazing connectivity uh exercise where you were just standing with a stranger and you ended up hugging them and we have like pictures of it and anyway, you it felt awkward but i'm like you know what now that's going to be the norm like i'm going to hug you for an awkwardly really long time cuz we're all so hug deprived oh, I, <laughs> I know
1: i know it's so it is yeah it is so hard
0: Yeah.
1: it's yeah so so yeah um the love that i have and uh and looking forward to when you can actually express it in a in a, a non virtual
0: way yes because- Yes, that will be so <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah. well, Wendy as always, it's it's just so warm and like you're like a big hug even though I can't hug you every time I interact with mm-hmm. you. I just feel like I've had yes, this enormous hug.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, someone told me that this is the the new heart shake. So instead of a handshake, you just put your oh. hand on your heart. So. And, well, there you we go. So hand, there's my heart shake.
0: Hand is on the heart big time and thank you just for Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for letting me reference your work and like bring, make people aware of it and just for, for being you. And I just I just adore you and it's always such a pleasure.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been, uh, uh, it's been great and uh, I appreciate so much of what you're doing with Fusion 2.0 and all of the work that you do. So um, I will continue to support that and hopefully in person we can all celebrate in the non-too-distant future.
0: Let's hope. Let's hope. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Show Up as a Leader. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Rosie Ward, and you can find me online at drrosieward.com, where you'll be able to sign up for my newsletter, check out the books I'm reading, and hear from the people I'm talking to. You can also get more information on what I'm up to professionally, including my coaching and speaking services. You can also find me on LinkedIn at rward, Facebook and Instagram at drrosieward, or email me at rosie at drrosieward.com. And I just want to remind you to remember that you have the choice every day to show up as a leader. So choose courage over comfort, embrace your humanity, and never, ever dull your sparkle. Take care, everyone.